It's the cage that people put themselves in that they don't even realize that they are in. And by using this assessment, it helps see the cage with more clarity of the cage that they're in through the patterns of thinking, feeling, emoting, and behaving. It's like giving them the keys now to decide, do I actually want to unlock the door, get out of that paradigm, get out of those patterns? That to me is what brings liberty and freedom from that mental and emotional suffering. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today on the path, we've got Jason Olivier with us. Now, Jason has a bachelor's in psychology as well as a master's degree in organizational development. Jason has been one of my personal one-on-one coaches for I think a little over a year now. And not only in the one-on-one coaching work that we've done, but also in his Inner Compass certification program that I took earlier this year, I've learned so much in my work with him. He's a Czech holistic lifestyle coach. He's a Journeys of Wisdom holistic coach, among many other things. But truly, I really feel his work with the personality assessment that he has developed that utilizes the Enneagram, his unique take, along with the co-developer of this assessment system is truly, truly unique. It's actually the first step of what I do with all my clients now. And in today's conversation, we do discuss quite in depth the inner compass assessment, the Enneagram, with the overarching goal to dismantle or to begin uncovering some of the root causes around people suffering, specifically mental and emotional emotional suffering. I guarantee you will walk away with so much knowledge from this podcast. Jason shares a ton of practical and very insightful information. So get ready. We're going right in with Jason Olivier. Today's topic is us diving into the theme of mental and emotional suffering. So as we head into this, I would love to hear your take on how do you define suffering and how is that maybe different from pain? Yeah. uh, Well, thanks, Mike, as always, uh, having these fun conversations uh, with you and look forward to learning with you here. Um, For me, suffering is more of a psychological slant, uh, meaning that it is our psychological resistance uh, to what is if I were to summarize it at a high level. Um, Suffering is the idea and the projections of my beliefs and my values. And when I experience myself, others of the world, not acting in accordance to my filters and my beliefs and values, a sense of resistance comes up within me. And then that resistance on some fundamental level is suffering. And ultimately it is also experienced uh, in the body. Uh, that for me is is suffering, whereas uh, you were alluding to you know physical pain. So to me, physical pain is where the body, literally from a physiological, biological perspective, is signaling that something is not uh, not aligned, is uh, not functioning properly. Um, so it could be physical pain. Examples could be you know you fall off the bike and and you break a leg or you sprain an ankle. 
uh, you could have eaten a meal and it's disrupting your gut and you feel distended and bloated and a lot of pain and constipated. Uh, those to me are examples of physical pain. Again, psychological suffering is interpreting the world through a perspective that um, challenges my values, challenges my perspective, challenges what I would expect to happen or what I want to happen or how I want things to be. And I interpret all of that. And then I have a sense of uh, emotional and mental uh, resistance. So that to me is more of the, the suffering, psychological suffering versus physical pain. And can you give me an example uh, that either you've experienced or maybe you've worked with clients on and how, what, what's an example of suffering? Sure. So uh, a good example might be where at work, um, executive leaders uh, have an idea where uh, they feel like and believe that they have been explicitly clear about what their vision and the direction that they want to go, go into uh, and the goals in which they're trying to sh strive for and achieve. And when the team is not operating and there's discord amongst the team and it interrupts or interferes with their ability to execute and therefore hit goals, the uh, executive leader then will get very reactive or may get very reactive and may get triggered and frustrated that, uh, quote, they don't get it. They don't understand my vision. They're not buying into uh, what I've communicated. I thought that there was clarity. I thought I communicated with clarity and precision about where we're going, why we're going, where we're going, uh, et cetera. And, you know, those things lead to a deep sense of frustration, anger, disappointment. And then that leads to an example of suffering from a leadership perspective. And then they take that as personally, I'm personally responsible. And then they do a lot of post judgment of self where they just undermine their ability to feel like, am I incompetent? Mm. Uh, am I clear? You know, then they start really wondering and undermining themselves based upon limiting beliefs. Can I really get this done? Is my decision making appropriate? Why do I seem to be making these not ideal decisions on who I'm bringing on board? You know, there's all these post suggestions through statements and questions that also compound what can bring about is suffering or mental emotional frustration. So there's a lot of terms we could use for suffering. That's super helpful. And I know, like, for example, you're not like, um, let's say like a licensed psychotherapist or anything like that, but I'm just curious to hear your take on with mental and emotional suffering, how might that be different from like, in your perspective, from like a mental illness? Because what I heard you say was, you know, trigger, frustration, anger. Those are all things that I'm super familiar with. And I think anyone who's a human being are going to experience some of those emotions at some given time. How do you differentiate or what comes up in terms of mental, emotional suffering versus like a mental illness? Yeah. So I would say for me, mental illness is one, they're going to use the diagnostic statistical manual, a DSM for psychological functioning. Um, having worked in pediatric psychiatric hospitals back in the day, that is their manual for diagnosing. Mm. Uh, and it's rooted in more of a pathology. Uh, and it's ingrained with uh, certain criteria, symptomatic criteria of functionality. So that's where we're, we would get into the concept of something being diagnosed as a mental illness. Whereas 
on this. It's almost like a, con- I, I mean, my bias is, is that it's almost like a continuum, Mike. I mean, in mm. some regards, you know, we can look at addiction and we could say, okay, so, you know, someone might go to Betty Ford. It's like my brother when he was playing for the NFL and popping uh, pain pills. And that's when he got hooked on uh, his pain pill addiction and had to go to the Betty Ford clinic for that. So to me, those are, you hit a tipping point uh, in regards to the diagnosable criteria that they've established for addictions and different illnesses, i.e. different levels of mental suffering. However, I would propose is that we all have addictions. We Mm. all have struggles and, and suffer. And I think sometimes it's just a continuum. It's a matter or degree of something. And when it becomes so pervasive in pathological or default mode where there feels like I just do the things that I know that totally make life for self and others dysfunctional, then it becomes a red flag. So I invite even myself and any clients that I've worked with um, to uh, consider where they're at in that continuum. Thank you for sharing that. That's a really helpful breakdown. And and with that, the the question that comes up for me is with this mental emotional suffering, where does it stem from? Where, from your understanding, do these maybe these belief structures? Where do they begin? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Um, all I can say is in my bias, it happens pre-verbal. Uh, some might even say it happens in utero. Um, however, at the end of the day, my default answer, Mike, is that within the first year, there is the maturity of the nervous system uh, and for a baby or an infant. And eventually it sees itself as a separate entity or perceives itself as a separate entity. And when the neurological system kicks on, some of the work in child development psychology uh, talks about this concept of a primordial wound, uh, meaning that there is this separation from mom and there's an overwhelm to the nervous system and chaos. And as a result, they, there is an, an, a, there's an attribution of a belief of that somehow that that was caused. Yes, under the umbrella of pre-verbal. However, uh, we look at that as core, a core belief forms as to why that separation occurred. And it's actually just a normal, natural process for any infant, including you and I, when we were infants, to mature, develop, the nervous system kicks on. In the beginning, it sees itself in mom, as best as we understand it, as one symbiotic entity. And then eventually, it becomes more and more mature, it becomes I'm assuming as you're experiencing now where uh, your boy is starting to notice objects with more clarity and more precision with his eyes and tracking. Um, Next thing you know, they'll start like my daughter, you know, start seeing the bottle or the toy as theirs. And so they just, there's a maturity of the nervous system, which is a very natural, very predictable experience. However, in summary, that that phenomena of experiencing itself as separate is traumatic to the human, to the being. And there is a belief that is adopted, in my theory is, there's a belief that is adopted in regards to the cause of this separation. 
And usually that gets into concepts around a false core or false belief, a false belief that is deeply rooted, pre-verbal, that is therefore then lived out for trying to be reconciled and dealt with mostly unconsciously for the rest of our days. So, you know, we've got, as you mentioned, we've got our little guy, uh, Luca. And as a parent, one of the things I'm finding is even though I know that the, the struggles, the pains, the developmental process of just being a human being comes with challenge, challenges and blessings. And as much as I would love to save my son from kind of hurt and pain and, and some of that stuff, I also know that it's inevitable. And I mean, I'm just so in the thick of it right now, right? Like he just, it was less than three months ago that he, he was burst. And so what you're sharing is, is like very viscerally true for me. And also part of my journey is just trusting that like, this is his path and his journey and every human on earth is going to experience that separation. And so one thing that I would love to get some additional clarity on is that pre-verbal, is it a coping mechanism to cope for the stress of that, that perceived and that, that actual separation that happens when the baby is, is birthed and actually physically separates from mom? Yeah. So it's, to me, it's a very much of a coping. There's coping strategies or compensation strategies that's dealt with throughout from a physiological and a psychological perspective of trying to navigate getting its needs met. So a hundred percent from my, my reading, my studying of for years of these phases of life being involved in, as I said, in pediatric psychiatric hospitals and psychiatric services for kids uh, as young as three, there is all kinds of compensation strategies to manage because it's so overwhelming. Mm. And for some kids, it's more overwhelming than others. Um, so there's this sense of chaos and overwhelm. And so we are all in so many shades of gray, going back to our earlier conversation about the continuum of you know, anger and frustrations all the way through to mental illness and addictions. Uh, we learn do different coping mechanisms from a very early age on how we try to navigate life to get our needs met. And uh, we highlight the ones uh, which give us the biggest bang for the buck. And we avoid the ones that don't seem to help us fulfill the needs that we have or perceive that we have. And, and so, you know, we'd start to develop certain patterns, certain rhythms of, of our respective strategies. And that's when you get into the classical definition of personality uh, based upon the American Psychological Association is the patterns of thinking, feeling, emoting, and behaving. And so to me, over those first few years of life, that's when the personality, so to speak, is developing. So then we get into these rote patterns and then you know, you can end up taking a personality assessment and you're like, yes, this resonates with me. And <laughs> nope, that sure as heck doesn't resonate with me. And I would offer that all of these things that we can recognize in ourselves more easily as adults, and even the things that we hide from and are unconscious of, but when through a coaching session and someone's holding up a mirror, you know, certain pattern truths avail themselves, you know, they all can be traced back. That's why stereotypically we can trace them back typically at some point in the first few years of life of where these compensation patterns developed and from which 
we keep on using those same old strategies uh, throughout life. And then, of course, when I was five years old, maybe I had to utilize certain strategies or certain strategies were really ingrained in me. And then we're still trying to use the same strategies that we used at five, at 25, and at 45, and at 70. And I think that's when people get into, is that still serving me? Like you'll hear that phrase sometimes when you get older, this isn't serving me anymore, right? And so it's really where these core beliefs and when they were adopted have kind of run on empty. The fuel, the fuel is running low on their perceived utility. And then as a result, you go to coaching or therapy or, you know, you try to figure out how do I, how do I deal with what is in a different way or a different construct or how do I lean into something? You know, these are the, you know, for me, the, the typical things people come to coaching or therapy for. With that in mind, one incredibly useful tool that I've now incorporated in my coaching that I learned from you was your take on the Enneagram, your inner compass assessment and the program and certification that you have based off of that. And so what I'm curious about, and you use this word earlier, uh, false core, false core triangle. If we're to first start off and just kind of unpacking this, what place, well, I guess, what is the Enneagram and how does it fit into this exact discussion that we're having? Yeah, great question. So the Enneagram, it is nine personality types, gender neutral. I've used it all over the world with people. So it's culturally culturally neutral. Uh, it transcends age. Um, there are pros and cons for each of the nine types. The origins are typically have a little bit of mysticism attached to it in regards to uh, ancient religious and spiritual traditions. There's a lot that can be said about that, but for now, and, and over the last, I'd say since the 1950s or 60s, what we know as the Enneagram today has been really cultivated uh, through the last, uh, yeah, since, like, since the 1960s or so. Uh, through various uh, predominant leaders around that were psychiatrists um, in South America, as well as in California. And then it just, it just snowballed from there. And next thing you know, you know, a Stanford university psychiatrist and professor of psychiatry um, started teaching it as well, or some of the main pillars of that promoted the model that we have today. And so the idea is that we have all nine types within us. And one is hands down dominant, and then all of the others we use to varying degrees. So the inner compass assessment that you're referring to, Mike, uh, we measure all nine types. And that's what's for me really important. And looking at it from a holistic perspective is how am I engaging the nine types in order to navigate life, right? Remember the reference to the personality is those in those patterns of thinking, feeling, emoting, behaving. So for me, the assessment captures for me with clarity, those exact patterns that everyone is living out some consciously, a lot unconsciously. And so when clients come and they take the assessment and we review that with them, we're looking at not only the patterns that they're aware of, but we get into the hidden motivations of why they're trying to compensate for life in the way in which they have. And so from that, 
that assessment opens up the door to help me understand about this false core that you were, that we were talking about before. So, you know, fundamentally the false core is this pre-verbal belief that an infant adopts a, about themselves as being the cause for the separation that they feel and that shock. And so those are core beliefs that lie in the unconscious mind. And they're things like, I am imperfect. I am powerless. I am alone. I am inadequate. I am unlovable. Uh, some terms which people would say, okay, that, that makes sense. I have some degree of appreciation and connection to those core beliefs on some level. That's called the false core. It is the most core belief that one has about themselves, which is the foundation and the anchor through which all of your psychology matures and develops off of. And from there, all of the other beliefs, the assumptions, the interpretations, the limiting beliefs are all byproducts of that foundational core belief, that false core belief. And then from there, there's this concept around what's called the false self. Primarily, the false self is the compensation strategies that one deploys throughout life. So when you take the assessment, you get to understand what your false core beliefs are, because that's your primary personality type. And then how you compensate across the nine personality types, all of those scores of the nine types are your false self compensation strategies. And so when we look at a graph, we can intimately identify the root cause, i.e. their false core, and therefore all of their false core self compensation strategies that they've been using. And so it begins to paint a, a holistic picture from at least a psychological perspective, what's getting them into trouble and what's leading them into that conversation around mental and emotional suffering. So that's what I'd throw out there for, for consideration and chew on that one a little bit. Yeah. Well, one of the common thing, probably one of the most common things that I've heard taking now clients through it. Now, every single client that I take through, this is basically step one. So when they come through the door, we go through an assessment, we go through an interpretation. And not only is it incredibly eye-opening for the client, and in fact, and you and I have had this discussion many times, one of the coolest things and probably most common things that we tend to hear is clients saying, wow, I can't believe how well you either know me or this assessment to know me almost better than I know myself. So from that perspective, it can be incredibly empowering and insightful for the client. But also from the coach, one of the, the neatest things that I'm experiencing is it's allowing me to one, get more surgical with the manner in which I coach and especially maybe the communication style that I choose to work with that person so that it resonates with how they receive, interpret and experience information and coaching. And if you're open to it, what I would love to do is now I know this about you and I, so we are both type ones uh, as our, as our core, we are both actually with ladies who are type twos, which is really interesting. But then also if you can maybe use us as an example to illustrate how some of the type one shows up. And then I know this can go so deep and so wide, but if you might be able to give a little bit of insight into each of the nine types. So someone who might be listening to this and re-listening to it can start maybe orientating themselves or start really just feeling into 
uh, some of the characteristics and qualities of each type and to see maybe where they might be able to gain some insights. Yeah, sounds good. So as a type one, our shared a coin, a term that I've coined and developed is a false core triangle that you alluded to, Mike. And so the false core is the embodiment of three core beliefs, one of which is I am imperfect, one of which is the belief that of the shame of being bad, and one of another, the other belief is the fear of making mistakes. So that triangle holds my psychic structure. It's the organizing principle of my psyche, right? Which we share. What's beautiful is, is that like, what I refer to it as a psychological fingerprint is the graph that you get from the assessment. Because although we share that false core belief, all of our nine scores are very different. So it illustrates the fact that everyone, although they might have a shared core belief, they all can look still very different behaviorally, attitudinal-wise, et cetera. Um, so with that said, you know, you have uh, that core belief, and then I try to compensate for that belief. My primary compensation is to be an improver or a fixer or a self-development junkie, I'll call it. <laughs> so the idea is if I can just fix my personal inner defects and my imperfectionisms, I'll be whole. I mean, basically what, I'm, what, what I find that we're trying to do is go back before the wound of the false cord developed. We're trying to feel whole. Uh, we're trying to feel complete so that we're not experiencing any lack. And we're not, and we're trying to feel equanimous or a lack of agitation within our being. So as a result of that is our natural state, we develop a false state of our false triangle. And then my main compensation for managing that, because I am now blind to my essential nature, because I've adopted an identity called this false core triangle. It's like I need glasses and I'm blind without the glasses, right? So I've just totally lost the vision of my essential nature and being cut off from that remembering or recalling, I set through a life, navigating life, trying to overcome what I think is what I am, which is I'm imperfect, that there's something wrong with me. And because this lies mostly unconscious, we, we don't think that of these compensation patterns as being just that compensation. We don't connect the dots that I'm doing this deeply because I fundamentally believe that there's something wrong with me. And even sometimes when people get a glimpse that that might be true, that's when you get suppression and repression and you just double down on trying to achieve your goals or trying to double down on those strategies that you feel like will help you temporarily alleviate yourself from believing in those beliefs, i.e. that suffering. So as a type one, I'm trying to always improve myself. What does that look like? Clean diet, trying to be uh, improve everyone around me and myself at work, trying to be the best performer because all I know is I see a lot of defects within myself, within other people, companies that I've consulted with, uh, if I'm not careful with clients, if I'm not careful, my judgments and opinions of politics, uh, 
it could be benign. I'll still have a strong judgment about it because somehow I see the gap in what is. And so I'm out trying to, to do that. And so, um, you know, even if I attended a fun, cool, peaceful rally, sometimes the motivation very well might be is the world is so filled with turmoil and there's so many problems that peace is the solution to overcome the imperfections in myself and other people. So it masquerades itself and um, that could be seducing and therefore uh, I'm trying to do noble things and I'm not trying to be dismissive of the nobility of somebody's actions. What I am challenging is that if it comes from a place of believing that I'm imperfect and that there's something wrong with me, then that strategy in and of itself is a false strategy. It's rooted in a compensation of a false belief. So that's one of the main things that the type one gets into. So things like dotting I's and crossing T's, having a high standards, trying to make sure that things are fair, um, trying to make sure that um, they right the wrongs that they see. There's all kinds of behavioral and attitudinal things that a type one will take on, but those are the, I would say, the main themes of a type one. And so then when you morph into the type two, you want me to get into the type twos and all the others at this point? Would that be helpful, Mike? Yeah, let's definitely go into it, but I'm going to pause you real quick there because it brings up so much for me and I'd love you to elaborate on one one aspect of it. What you shared in the beginning of the podcast about so much of this stuff being rooted when we are super young kids, pre-verbal. And again, I have such a like a my awareness of this right now is so visceral because we're we're raising Luca right now and he's so young and so I'm just hyper super interested in this. And when I think back to my earlier years, it's interesting because I can pick times in high school uh, and then much earlier than that, but times in high school when I was competing and all my buddies were partiers, they were wild men, they're on the football team and they'd go out drinking and I would never go out drinking unless it was like in the two or three weeks in between powerlifting competitions. And I just remember multiple scenes when my buddies would try to get me to drink and be like, come on, Mike, let's go. And, and I would always say no, like, no was just my go-to word. And I just remember thinking back to back then and, and one buddy, we were outside of my high school and we were walking. He's like, dude, why the fuck? Why won't you just rally with us? Why won't you just party? And I remember telling him something that resonates so much with the type one. And I was like, because of the effing principle, I'm not going to do it. And the principle, I told myself that I'm training for three months and I got two weeks of an off season. And that's what I told myself. And that's what I believe was the right thing to do. And so screw everybody else because it wasn't on, you know, what I've deemed to be true, correct and good. And then I can also think back to, you know, things in middle school and even younger than that. And I'm curious, is there something that comes up for you when you were a young, young kid of maybe a challenge and a struggle, especially in those early years that you'd be open to share that, that also brings in this challenge around how you were compensating for uh, that false belief? Yeah, I have a, several good goodies. Um, <laughs> so I'll piggyback on a similar example that you gave, Mike. I mean, I grew up in New York. We were out very early, hanging out with friends all day. And you, you, know, you come home for dinner, you know, and we're all over the streets playing. And I remember we got to the age of about 13. We would hang out every day. All of us is a pack of like 15 of us. 
And next thing you know, beer and smoking weed became a thing. And interestingly enough, they were like, yo, Olivier, wh why don't you uh, drink a beer with us and hang out? And I just said, uh, I'm not drinking a beer. And basically then all of a sudden my friends looked at me and said, if you don't drink, you can't hang out. And at 13 years old, I said, I'm walking. Peace. And I walked out and I went home and my mom and my dad were like, yo, what are you doing home so early? And I said, <laughs> I had an ultimatum is either drink a beer or go home. You wasn't asked to be invited anymore. And my parents looked at me with these big eyes of like, holy cow, almost like, you know, sign of the cross. Thank God, you know, the good old <laughs> Catholic mom and dad. And, uh, you know, they were just, you know, tearful and eye to eye, like, thank God. I mean, you know, with my son at 13. And so I give that example to say is, I had a real strong inner moral fabric of what is the right thing to do. And it's rooted in me trying to parent my parents because I thought, because I saw gaps in their parenting and a lot of things as a type one in particular. So my desire was to parent my parents and or try to heal my parents. Mm. And that came in this example where my dad growing up, his old man would come home drunk drinking beers and smoking cigarettes and would beat my dad up at, you know, after he came home from the bar every single night. And my dad shared those stories with me. And because of my super ego, that totally hit my inner moral compass button. And I was like, I remember being like nine years old saying, I'm never going to come home drunk because that will represent my grandfather, my dad's father. And that's way too much trauma for my dad. So I'm not going to do that to him. I remember taking that on. And then here we are. Uh, and in the midst of all that social pressure, to me, it was a no-brainer. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to come home drunk to my dad. That would be like the most traumatic thing I could probably do to my dad. I mean, these are the stories and ideas that I had floating in my head. At 13. And, um, I explained that to him at 13 years old, man. Um, you know, uh, at 17, I had a moped riding in the streets and, you know, my one buddy said, dude, why don't you drive it out of town to go get X, Y, and Z? And I was like, dude, my old man asked me to stay within town within the mope with my moped because of, you know, drivers and getting hit potentially and all that. He was like, dude, no one's, he, your man, old man's never going to know. And I remembered I was 16 years old and I turned to him and I said, you know what? I will know. And I then can't look at my father in the face and say that I've followed the rules, you know, so it, it plays out. And just to piggyback on this, Mike, I would say, you know, as being a father, I mean, it showed up in when my daughter was an infant, it was like, as well, like, I don't want my daughter to get sick. I want her to be perfectly healthy, perfectly well. Uh, the minute she had a cough, what the hell was that? Is she going to be okay? Right. You know, that kind of stuff. And so I would invite you to say, you know, how has your desire for your coming from the place of there's something wrong with me, or therefore I see situations that there's something wrong with it that I'm already trying to interfere or, or protect Luca from having certain experiences is, you know, a question, I'm not asking you that you have to answer it today, but just is, it's a good type one question to say from my motivation for our shared motivation, you know, are we trying to, ensure that nothing wrong goes on through the lens of my our shared type one other people will have 
perceived similar desires, but for very different motivations. You know, you mentioned the ladies in our lives are type twos, you know? So for me, the type two is going to look at wanting to ensure the health of the child from a nurturing and connection and a desire to be worthy of whomever. And they don't want to have to, or experience the fear of rejection, which is part of their triangle, right? And they want to not have the shame of not being valued. So, you know, they might get involved and, and you know, be a parent by trying in, in such a way that they're trying to compensate and trying to get those needs met or avoid those beliefs by being a certain kind of mom so that she feels the connection. Those are just some, some examples, hopefully that hits home for others to, to consider for themselves. As you're hearing in today's conversation, the inner compass assessment that Jason co-developed and his utilization specifically of the Enneagram within it is such a valuable tool. I mean, I know that I've gotten so much from it, both as a person and as a coach, so much so, in fact, it's actually now incorporated into the Men of Movement retreats. And so every single guy who comes to the retreat, for example, on June 8th through the 11th, which is back out in Mount Shasta, California, before even attending the retreat, a complimentary assessment will be sent to you. You'll be able to go through it. You'll get a hard copy of all your results, which provides provides such insightful knowledge and awareness into the inner workings of our psyche. A lot of times the root of our mental emotional suffering is exactly so tied to what these results put out there. And that's why, I mean, I've heard this from well more than a handful of guys that one of the most, if not the most helpful or practical thing that they are taking home with them is how we utilize this inner compass assessment in the retreat and the information, the knowledge, the awareness, and the insights that they're taking with them back home into their daily life with the goal of supporting them, especially when triggered, especially when challenged. And so if you are interested and you are a man or you are a lady who knows a man who could benefit from the Men of Movement retreat, please hit me up. All you got to do is go to the link in the show notes or my website, mikesalemi.io. In the upper right corner, hit the programs tab, hit the men of movement tab, and you'll be able to hop on a call with me. It will be a coaching call where we'll dive into what you're really struggling with right now and what is really drawing you to a retreat like this. So let's get right back to the show and dive in with Jason once again. Yeah, that's super helpful because what it also is bringing up for me, brother, is I think that the real gems and the real power in this tool, especially is a tool for awareness. And what I'm realizing for myself is the type one or leading, let's say with a type one, like there definitely are some blind spots and there are some negatives like each of the types, but there's also some incredible superpowers as well and some incredible strengths that come along with each type. And I think at the end of the day, the big key for me is like just being aware of when I'm acting in some of these patterns and where is it coming from? And just that piece, as opposed to trying to disregard it or being overly critical of myself, I've kind of just realized like, wow, like being a type one has some incredible strengths and also some weaknesses to be aware of, just like all the types. And with that said, as we transition, I'd love for you to give at a high level, I know, again, this can go really deep, but at a high level, can you share some of maybe the positive and or negative characteristics or some of the key motivations of the other types? 
Yeah, sure. So we covered, I think, type one, hopefully sufficiently, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so the type, yeah, the type two's core belief is around um, being worthy and, and having uh, a desire for love and for connection. So they're the nurturers, compassionate, easygoing, great at sniffing out the emotional state of others and being a good helper and trying to be there for other people. Uh, some of the dog side is they can rescue people. Therefore, they create victims so that they can rescue. Um, they can also manipulate uh, to ensure that they're always around or involved or connected and, and helping. Um, the type three is the achiever. So they're striving and have an identity that my value and worth is associated with achievement of goals. So therefore, when I hit goals, I'm the best thing in the world. And when I don't hit goals, there's quite a bit of judgment. But they're very task-oriented, very competitive. Um, they are really savvy with trying to understand what are the needs, or not necessarily the needs, but the, the desires of others that they think are important stakeholders. And they'll try to woo or wow them in regards to their performance to those external expectations. Uh, the downside is they can hide, they can deceive themselves and others, and they try to create an image of success while yet simultaneously feeling empty inside, especially emotionally. Uh, the type fours refer to a lot of times as the individualists, deep emoters, uh, deep feelers. They're probably the deepest, deepest of the nine types in regards to a, a rich inner world of emotional experiencing and sensations of the body. Um, their emotions and their somatic experiences are their lifeline. Without it, they would feel like there's no purpose in living. Uh, they're very artistic, very creative. They're also very moody, uh, very uh, can be narcissistic and selfish and uh, all kinds of fun stuff and from the emotional, usually side of things. Uh, type five is usually the investigator, more of the uh, scientist, the, the CPA, the engineer, very left brain. Uh, for them, it's all about thinking and knowledge acquisition, competence, wisdom. Uh, they want to take things apart and understand all of the intimate intricacies of how something functions and operates and then can with wisdom tell you who, what, when, how, and why it works or doesn't work. Uh, so they're like an encyclopedia. Uh, and so very cognitive-based. And for them, if you take away their thinking, the sense of who they are and that they don't even exist is pretty strong, just like that type four type. Uh, the downside is that they don't like to feel. They feel like feelings are a waste of time. Uh, feelings can't be measured, categorized as easily as linear sequential categorization classically in mathematical equations. Uh, so they disassociate a lot emotionally and they're emotionally numbed out. The type six is considered the loyal skeptic. So the loyal skeptic is um, one of which is trying to anticipate risk, anticipate how things can go wrong and prepare appropriately for themselves and others and and, and the world in regards to emergency preparation and preparedness. They love to connect. They love connecting with people in a genuine and authentic way. Some of the negative sides is that they, at the same time, seek out connection and loyalty, and loyalty is really big for them. 
simultaneously, they also don't trust even when there is loyalty in front of them. They struggle with that. So they have typically great and loyal friends, but in the back of their mind, they're always at still on a fundamental level questioning themselves and others' motivations and why are they showing up the way they are. Uh, the type seven is called the enthusiast. Uh, they are very playful. Uh, the world is my oyster. I want to experience life. Um, they're out of the box thinkers, uh, very creative, um, very quick witted and can um, have innovate in tons of ideas. On the downside, it's for them, uh, they're hard to be disciplined. Uh, they don't like to look at the negative side of life. They want to stay positive and stay on focused on possibilities in the win-win in experiencing. Um, so they definitely try to avoid the negative aspects of life and they can't sit still because there's a sense of I'm incomplete. So they try to complete themselves by doing all of these experiences and exercises and, and activities, et cetera. So getting them to meditate is very difficult. It's almost like sometimes ADD, adult ADDs and even kids. Uh, the type eight is uh, considered the leader. They're very strong, very dominant. Uh, they love challenges. Uh, they're very intense. They get after it. They have a little bit of a savior complex that they want to save the underdog, you know, et cetera. The, the downside to the type eight and their leadership is they can be a little bit of a bull in a china shop, so to speak. I mean, they'll throw their weight around a lot and uh, they love to kick up dust. And sometimes uh, it's, they come across as, quote, tough love. They're going to give you their directness and bluntness, and it sometimes feels vindictive or an attack. So you just have to watch out for the intensity of a type eight at times. And then the type nine, which is uh, the peacemaker. So the peacemaker is looking for peace. They're really good at seeing the gray, the, the differences in life and seeing where there's similarities and commonalities. As a result, they lose themselves and sometimes they lose their ability to have their own desires or their own wants and needs to be declared because they're so um, agreeable and people-pleasing and want to not cause disharmony or disrupt their environment and their relationships with other people. So they end up um, acquiescing to others and denying themselves what they want out of life sometimes. So... That's the high level version, brother, of uh, the nine types. Oh, man, I appreciate you going into all that. I imagine that uh, anyone listening either uh, has a notepad or will re-listen to this and probably take some notes on everything that you shared. And that being said, one of the things that I've heard from friends or other people who have been introduced to the Enneagram is when they've taken your inner compass assessment, which everyone that I've taken through it and even myself, like it feels very accurate. It feels very true. And people have commented when they've taken other tests or other assessments, it's almost as if they've been mistyped. And so what I'm curious about is, because I know you've worked, you co, co-created this with someone else and you've put so many years of thousands of hours of blood, sweat, and tears into this puppy. Can you speak to a little bit on what makes your assessment? I know you touched on it earlier, but what made either the creation of it or what it is unique and different from what's out there? Yeah, thanks, Mike. And it is true, uh, thousands of hours and blood, sweat, and tears metaphorically there. Um, 
So I developed it with a very good friend of mine. He was a clinical psychologist, PhD, and we both took an Enneagram training together about 20 years ago. And he had, uh, I was getting, finishing up my degree or maybe was that, uh, no, I had graduated, gotten my degree in psychology, had done a lot of psychometric stuff in my, my psychology background and education. He would use the multi, Minnesota multi-personality inventory as a clinician for a long time. We went through the training and we had a conversation at the end of it. He said, Jason, we need to collaborate and develop our own tests. And I think and feel like how we design it can actually get more sensitive and specific than the assessment that I'm currently using and outlined his theory for it. I outlined my ideas for it. And then we started to go to work at it. Um, and so what we would do is we developed questions for each of the nine types that was really intended on trying to tap into the motivational factors associated with the nine types. We would do all kinds of customer market knowledge uh, or acquisition of customer market knowledge and research, develop the test, have people do it, and just iterate, iterate, iterate. Uh, and poke holes why it wasn't accurate, wasn't working. Then part of the secret sauce is we actually built in within it a scoring system that highlighted what we thought were those factors that made the assessment um, as accurate as we could get it. And we just kept on testing that theory and testing it, and eventually it morphed into what it is today. And so I've had a couple of people periodically say, I took an online version that was free and it said I was this and your assessment came out this way. And I said, great, let's do a review with it. And at the end of the day, if you feel like this graph and what I've shared with you in the interpretation of your graph is definitely not you, then I'll give you your money back. I'm not going to portray this test as being what it can't do. And if that's what it, you experienced that it couldn't do for you, then no problem. And so I've, I've put it through the gauntlet so much, Mike, that I tell that to anyone even still to this day. And I have yet, knock on wood or whatever you want to call it, but <laughs> people say that actually was really clear as to why the type that the test indicated was more accurate for me. And one key thing that comes up a lot, Mike, is a lot of these tests don't look at all nine types. They're just going to mm. say, well, here's your core type. And you might have, uh, you might be a type one that, that we share, but my eight score is pretty solid, is higher, is elevated. Yours isn't from recall, right? Right. Uh, and so as a result, um, if I answered some of those questions with some other assessments, I might come out as an eight because they're only looking at the one type. And so when we look at it holistically, I've had that conversation with people and I would say things like, well, as a type one, you're using your type eight as a compensation strategy in these ways. And they were like, that is a hundred percent feels <laughs> accurate for me. And I said, could you see then why you might think of yourself as being both uh, that's because you do have both within you, but you're using both as a compensation for the triangle belief that is your core type. And they're like, and that's when the you know the lights go on and say, ah, that makes sense on how this is all interconnected and how I'm using 
you know, the type eight, for example, uh, I am direct. I love challenges. I want to get my ideas out there because especially when I'm consulting, I've worked in hospital and the healthcare system a lot. I was pushing to change the system and I was in leadership roles to do that. But if you were to ask me, why am I doing it? What I would confess to you is I saw all the imperfections through the lens of my triangle, my false self, my false core, and my false self-compensation was I need to get into leadership roles so that I can make massive or larger scale change to right all of the wrongs that I see in this system. So when I explain things like that with people's graph, they're like, oh, I can see why I can be really intense because I'm trying to reconcile the imperfections. Whereas a type eight is using their intensity, but it's because they feel like they're powerless. And so they're trying to overcompensate their powerlessness by being powerful. Although, so on the surface, we're both being direct and and forceful at times and and want challenges and want to be in leadership roles. My motivation or my unconscious motivation for doing so is different than another person who might be a type eight. And to me, that's why the assessment that we use that I developed with inner compass, when I look at all nine types, then to me, it helps me understand the web that they've woven for themselves. Or in my half empty glass, half empty metaphor is it's the cage that people put themselves in that they don't even realize that they are in. And by using this assessment, it, it helps see the cage with more clarity of the cage that they're in through the patterns of thinking, feeling, emoting, and behaving, and that false core belief that it's like, in my opinion, it's like giving them the keys now to decide through the awareness factor that you talked about, do I actually want to unlock the door and actually get out of that paradigm, get out of those patterns? Because you have to, in my opinion, be able to know what your patterns are at a very deep level, link them back to your, your motivation of that false core in order to genuinely surrender it and let it go. Uh, that, to me, is what brings liberty and freedom from that mental and emotional suffering. So hopefully I wasn't too long-winded about how this personality assessment came about, uh, why I have... I love it, why I pedestalize it, why I think it is all of that. Um, and I'm always open to, to learning. I mean, to me, that's the beauty of the, the tool. My former co- uh, business partner and co-developer with it, Joel, his name was Joel Ehrlich, he and, I, he and I would say, when in doubt, the graph is right, we're wrong, and we need to figure <laughs> out how to better un- interpret the graph in a way that makes sense for a client or a person. And I still think that that for me probably holds true uh, overall is it's not, nothing is perfect. Here is a type one trying to say that my assessment is not perfect. (laughs) It's not. And yet it does offer a really great glimpse into who you think and feel and created yourself to be and have mistaken yourself for then as a, as a way in which to forget about your essential nature. So always learning with the tool, even the classes that I taught and that we participated in together, I always looked at it as all teach, all learn. I'm I'm always learning about some nuance of this tool 
even almost 20 years later. And that's one of probably like for me as a student taking that, that course and that certification with you. And I've also done extensive coaching with you even before that. But that was actually one of the enjoyable things. And anytime you're a student is when the instructor is as excited, if not more excited than you are when you're taking it. And so, you know, you and I have had many conversations or just on the calls, like your fascination with it, your interest with it, your excitement with it, your willingness to support me, to support the other people was very palatable and, and super felt. And like, that's the, 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 the type of teachers that I love. And not only are you a friend, but, you know, I consider you obviously a coach and a mentor and a teacher. And as we wrap this up, brother, in light of the the original, let's say, question, like understanding or maybe dismantling suffering, mental, emotional suffering, is there any closing words on that or anything now that we've had, we've kind of unpacked this in different ways, what might advice or what might you be able to share in closing with someone who is experiencing uh, just a tough time right now? Where might they start in in kind of supporting themselves in this? I love the question, Mike. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind and my heart is one of the things that compounds suffering, in my opinion, is that we look outside of ourselves and we think, uh, I'm going to search for a bottle, a drug, my phone, a relationship, a job, um, a promotion, uh, acceptance. Something outside of me, an objective experience, objects, I'll call it, objective experiencing. And somehow we feel like that is where I can find the alleviation of my suffering. And I think and feel like that is a great place to consider and take a pause and say, how am I, what are the strategies I'm using currently to deal with my suffering, my frustrations in life? Um, et cetera. And how am I trying to soothe them, overcome them, heal them, transmute them, et cetera, through an objective experience. And I would ask people to pause those strategies and actually turn inward and ask them the important questions of uh, who or what am I? And it's more than just a philosophical question. Um, Am I really my personality? Who is the one that is suffering? Get really curious with curiosity and courage to ask yourself those inward-facing questions and turn your attention inward. Um, And we've talked about these concepts in, in the past, you and I, in regards to specifically is asking yourself, am I my thoughts? Or do I experience my thoughts? Uh, am I my body? Or do I have a body and have experiences somatically? Right? So basically what I'm getting at is that thoughts come, you can observe them, and thoughts go. Emotions come, emotions go. Sensa- sensations in the body, they come and they go. And then you could actually, you know, you can have reconstruction to the body and parts of the body go, literally. And yet this sense of me, I, is still there. So there's no sense of the body or the mind, and I mean mind in a global sense here, emotionally, mentally, etc. 
that when they when those experiences come and go, they're impermanent. But the sense of I through all of that is. And so I would ask people to investigate what is the nature of that I? Who am I so that I can reevaluate? Uh, do I want to keep on suffering through these beliefs that I have? Or can I figure out what is my essential nature and therefore know that I'm not my beliefs? And that to me is a big start in a very big direction of doing a real deep internal inventory and being able to be willing to not believe that they are their beliefs and their ideas and their body and, and their mental thoughts that come and go because all of those things will draw your attention outward. So it's building this uh, muscle, so to speak, metaphorically of going inward and facilitating yourself to go inwards to uh, look at yourself differently or look at your situation differently and to look then what and how do I want to handle it and address it uh, by going inwards versus outwards. So that would probably be a big invitation for <laughs> sure, especially for people maybe who have not tried that or considered that or have done it in shades of gray. But it's the consistent willingness to ask yourself those very, very surgical-like questions and have an experience for or with yourself about that. That's definitely number one where I try to invite myself and I would invite others to, to consider. That's a super powerful exercise. I remember when you first guided me through that. And I'd heard concepts of this in the past, but being guided through it and just you know, even if someone were listening to this exact segment and maybe even pause it after Jason sharing those questions to consider and go through it, feel into it, journal it, whatever, uh, that was an incredibly powerful exercise for me. So thank you for sharing that here with, with everyone listening and, and brother, dude, I'm so grateful. I can't believe this, this hour just flew by my man and you shared so much for people interested in the inner compass or looking at coaching with you or the certification, can you share briefly where people can find you? Absolutely. So uh, my website, innercompass9, the number nine.com. And then you can catch me on Instagram at innercompass9 is my handle. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you again so much. Love you, brother. And uh, it was so nice chatting with you today. Mike, as always, a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. 